0: This is Black Teacher Matters. I'm Abdel Shakur. This first quarter of our first year back in the building just finished. So, how's it going? You know, with the whole teaching in a pandemic thing. I get that question a lot these days. But I can't even lie. It's hard, but it's good. This guy I used to teach with said that one day some kids came up to him and tried to give him some advice. Man, why are you always smiling, they said. Why are you so cheerful? You need to get tough. Stop being so soft. He looked at them and simply said, Do you have any idea how long it took me to get this soft? In my 14th year, I think I'm coming into my own softness. More often, I'm taking it easy, rolling with the vibe in the space, ceasing the worship of the perfection idol, entertaining the notion that we might actually be enough today if we can see each other, see ourselves, maybe revel a bit in the absurdity that's being dished out daily. And that's why last episode where we heard from the poet Ross Gay talk about the need for us to think more intentionally about the way we've been taught to gather, the ways we need to relearn how to gather, that really hit home for me. This episode is the second part of our conversation. Also featuring special special guest star poet Nandi Comer. It's going to be a good one, y'all. But before all that, I got a story to tell. I hope you enjoy.
1: Listen to Black Teacher Matters Podcast. Every time you like and share, you are supporting a black teacher.
0: We're in the first three weeks of school, and I'm standing in the middle of class, hands on a rolling desk across from Kwame, a stocky ninth grader who says he wants to be a professional boxer someday, and he looks it. He's a good listener, but he's got a lot of that Taurus bull energy. You know the type, like me. The class is seated around us, and we're demonstrating a game called Pushing Without Winning. I remind him and everyone that the goal of the game is to match the strength of your partner without pushing them over with the desk. What's the name of the game? I ask the class. Pushing without? Winning! Everyone repeats. I pulled Kwame up for a demonstration because when we played the game earlier, he almost pinned his partner against the wall. Against my better judgment, I thought it might be different if I paired up with him in front of everyone okay Kwame you think you can just match my strength not go over just match me just match he shrugs and smiles I don't know we set our hands on the desk and we start pushing immediately I can feel this kid's strength as he sets his feet and little veins raise up on his forehead like rivers I'm chiding myself for wearing a pair of flat vans that are not getting much traction on the low-pile carpet. Now, besides our grunting, the class is quiet, and everyone is wrapped. I can feel my feet slipping. And I think to myself, how did I get into this mess? I'll tell you. Zora Neale Hurston said that some years ask questions and others answer them. Last year, sitting on Zoom trying to teach in the middle of a pandemic... Every day was a new challenge, a new unprecedented trauma, a new question with terrible implications. From the littlest thing, like what even qualifies as being present in a class, to the largest, like what should we actually be learning if our society is crumbling before our eyes? Last year made me question everything about the way I teach, and this year me and my students are living out the answers every day. One of those answers involves playing more games, games, than I ever have. Now, sure, I played games in my class in the past on special occasions, but it would, all, it would be a stretch to call them fun. I act easygoing, but I'm a recovering, over-anxious control freak. I think of a lesson like I think of a story. Every detail building to a common theme and experience, everything tied to the learning standards and skills... And that ain't joyful. What Zoom made me realize is that all of this control is an illusion. And that if students aren't really involved, really engaged, really connected, we're not preparing them to build the world we need them to create for all of us. Now, before I go any further, I should say that one of the mistakes I often made was thinking that doing a, quote, team-building exercise, unquote, was going to, quote, teach my students how to work together or instantly bond them. I set them and myself up for failure because I was testing them on something they never learned in high school. We don't teach our children to gather peacefully, collaboratively, lovingly, with space for vulnerability. Sure, we lecture about it, but we don't teach it. I got tense when they didn't play the game right, and even when I played it cool, they could feel my disapproval. Now I get that my main job with games is to celebrate all the ways my students are showing up and take it for what it is, data. They are showing you where they are at. And no matter what they do, in the words of my teaching mentor, Christopher Fontana, I say, great first draft. And then we do our most important job, reflect. So, before Kwame can send me flying into the bookcases and I end up on someone's Instagram story, I call timeout. Great first draft, I say. Kwame's got a 120-watt smile going, and he's so proud of himself. Maybe even a little relieved that Mr. Shakur didn't push him over. During our class reflection, he lets me know that a game called Pushing Without Winning makes no sense to him. Because that's not how his life works. You push as hard as you can, or you get rolled. I don't argue, but I just let him and everyone else know we're going to try and see if there's another possibility this year. The thing I love about games is that they unearth all of those feelings and dynamics that express themselves anyway. He taught our class a whole lesson on his worldview, on his goodness, on his motivation, in the space of just a few minutes. Now I know what we have to work with what we have to work on. To play games, I also have to let go of the idea I even understand the point of what we're doing all the time. Case in point, I'm in my all-black male writing workshop class. It's the start of the period, and because of a bug in our block schedule, I've had three less classes with this group, which translates into about 240 minutes of class time. Now we've got a big narrative writing assignment hanging over our head, And the clock is ticking tick 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 there's a lot of work to be done that's what's on my mind instead we're struggling to figure out how to count to 23 we're playing the counting game and basically it goes like this there's 23 people in class and our goal is to collectively count to 23 each person says one number and we count up if two people say the same number we start over we start off okay. Someone says one. Another says two. Real quick, someone slides in three. Then two people say four. So we start over. We get to five. Then we mess up again. Then it happens again. And again real quick. And again. This game always makes me nervous because the stakes are so high. You, want, you don't want to fail as a group at something that seems so simple. Not a good way to start class. But you also don't want to take all day doing it oh man someone shouts from the back of the room another mess up dang why y'all do that it's one at a time we try again and get to 11 but we mess up again what is wrong with y'all someone scolds even i'm sucking my teeth mournfully every time we have to restart when we get to 11 and mess up again i'm thinking about how i can gracefully stop the game and transition back into the lesson Great first draft everyone. We got to 12 today. Maybe we can go for 16 next time. But then I noticed Glenn. I noticed Glenn's voice. Who's standing to my right? And he started the count. Each time we mess up, he says "1" firmly to restart us. "1" "1" "1" Each time a little more firmly, a little louder. After a while, I stop sucking my teeth and concentrate on just listening close. And we get to 8, and then 12, and then 15. Instead of trying to sneak our numbers in by saying them fast, we really listen. Really anticipate each other's breath. 16, 18, the room feels intense. 20, it's energetic, I can feel it on my skin. 22, then finally someone yells out, 23! And we cheer like we won the championship who's crying i'm not crying you're crying and here i was thinking that the whole game was just about working together but glenn showed me that it's also about being the type of leader who encourages by being ready to start again without recrimination without remorse without regret getting us back on the magical funky one Playing games has helped me see how important it is to honor consent. Everyone should have the right to pass if they aren't feeling the game. I used to get a funky attitude when someone opted out. I'm taking my class time to play games with you and you won't even play. Not only did this interfere with building relationships, which was actually the whole point, it emphasized compliance over consent. Consent is joyful. Compliance, not so much. Now, if a child passes, I say, cool, and kindly ask them to join our reflection afterward. There's a lot of talk about trauma-informed teaching these days. It's good because we learn how trauma shapes the behavior of our children, but this moment calls on us to go further. Paul Ginwright recommends moving from the trauma-informed to healing-centered engagement. And that means culture spirituality civic action and collective healing are a part of everything we do and we do it together as a community basically healing comes when trauma no longer defines you your definition comes from your connections to the world to your soul to your community and your actions that repair harm and that is a path to healing and that path is collective not individual and that path is energized by joyful engagement. And that ain't no game. Who wants to play one?
2: It feels like so often classrooms are actually places where the gathering that we're studying is a kind of coercive gathering, a gathering, uh, a competitive gathering, and a gathering that, to my mind, is like, hand in hand with terrible shit. So, you could, so mostly that's what the gathering that is being practiced, I think, in classrooms. That's a lot of, in my experience, which is partly why I'm thinking, well, how do we gather in these other ways that is not coercive, mm-hmm. that is not evaluative, that is actually sort of like the thing that we were talking about earlier, where it's like, we can kind of hold each other with love and care and sort of just be like, be curious. Be like, huh.
0: Woman. full disclosure me and ross gay talked in november of 2020 remember that like 10 years ago and it took me this daggone long to get this episode together so we're doing a little time traveling here now ross gay is an amazing poet teacher and homie we talked last episode about the black teachers who shaped him and in the second part of our interview, we talk more about making imagination and curiosity occasions for gathering. Something something I struggle with with students is like you know th- th- I think people generally know how to be nice. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't say this, don't bully, don't you know respect people's pronouns and their racial identities and blah blah, blah blah blah. Right. I mean, hopefully you get that at least at some people. Yeah. I mean, that is a goal. That's definitely a goal. To be curious about one another. Yep. In a way that's not... That allows for vulnerability. Yep. Like your own vulnerability about your curiosities, and then also that person you're being curious about, like for them to feel safe enough to give a home to your curiosity in some kind of way. And that seems like the hardest... The most difficult thing to kind of break through in terms of the ways that we gather and like, because that's not a, it's like, no, we, you know, if I put them in, a, you know, I put them in a breakout room or whatever, I say, well, I just want y'all to talk, you know, and it's be like, I come back two minutes later, screens are dark, it's quiet. <laughs> it's like,
2: we done. <laughs> we didn't have nothing else to talk about. We're done. Just I know, I know, I know. And I think probably, like, I wonder, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if partly that's because the function of school already is like the ground is so coercive Mm -hmm. that it's like we're kind of we're always trying to get out of something like that's just how it is you're actually supposed to be trying to get out of something you're trying to try to dodge you're trying to like it doesn't matter you're trying to get the thing that they want you to get so you'll do whatever I know Um, and and you know like because when you teach it when you're able to teach a class where that's not the case you know some kids are like All right, i'm out of here you know because dungeons and dragons is on the, on the you know reruns of dungeons and dragons room i want to watch that but a lot of people are kind of like we don't have to do anything let's hang out you know let's just let's just bullshit a little bit you know for, you know like the space to be like how are you doing and not this isn't for anything i right. you know, I also wanted to say like that idea of like being able to be curious and vulnerable with each other. It's like, you know, my partner and I are in, you know, uh, couples therapy right now and trying to figure out how to communicate, (laughs) get better at communicating. (laughs) And that's like one of the things. So it's not like, it's not like it's uh, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's actually really hard, you know, for all kinds of reasons, but it's like to just, have spaces where spaces in our lives where we can kind of just, just be curious.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you
2: feel? Just be curious. Mm-hmm. And then to also be able to be like, and this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. You know, not like how I feel about you, but like how I feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you
0: know? Right. And, and I don't need to solve it or do anything about it necessarily. This is just yeah. this is just me.
2: Yep, yep. I don't need you to change. You don't have to change. And, and, you know, like, classrooms are, all classrooms are about, you know, is correcting behavior. That's all classrooms are about, you right. know. I know myself. I, I don't love that. <laughs> I don't love that, you know. I love being in places where probably I have the chance to sort of consider my behavior. I know that i want to make spaces where of course where we you know we behave right um but where where it's not like you know one of the things this is such a crucial moment for me and my teaching and it was like i was a teaching workshop and it was the first time i was like you know we're not workshopping we're not we're not we're not uh, we're going to do this sort of collaborative generative thing and see what happens and someone was like do you want us to turn these in some exercise that they had done. We all read them, we heard them out loud, we sort of, you know, listened and, you know, said what was beautiful or asked questions or like, this makes me think of this. And I was like, no, I don't want, no, don't turn them in. And partly I felt, of course, like a failure, like I was a fraud <laughs> because I wasn't gonna like, what? Look, you know, look at their papers. Like I heard them like, I don't, you know, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in like telling you just what I think you should do. I don't believe in it, but I'm supposed to do it. Otherwise, I'm a fraud in this evaluation machine. Right. (laughs) Uh, And I was just like, it was so scary, and I was like, no, (laughs) you know, man, it was so nice. Then it was like, now we can actually just talk, just make stuff and talk, and they don't have to be like, what did he think of what I did. Right. You know? We could just be like, this grad class, you know, i understand that it's a grad class and all that. These people are, you know. But still it was like we could just like be curious in making stuff. Mm-hmm. And then if they wanted to meet individually and like get into like some specific questions, I'd be like, well come with your questions. And then I'll help you think about your questions. I'll do my best to try to help you think about your question. Mm-hmm. But I'm not gonna like, I'm probably gonna be like, you know, tell you your shit's beautiful because I kind of like I kind of find a lot of shit beautiful, but mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to be like doing a kind of evaluation that that I would have been doing five years ago.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. Which can be sort of um, confusing. I think it can feel liberating and opening for some people, and I think it can feel like um, bogus to some people, and
0: that's fine.
2: That feels right. good. Right.
0: right, yeah. How that hit your inner Puritan, kind of? Yeah, right.
2: Totally. Mine is strong. Mm-hmm. Mine is really strong. Right. <laughs> like, man, you trying to get out of work?
0: <laughs> right. Going to watch Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> well, I mean, because you, you, I guess that that, that kind of answers one of my questions. It was about. Your sad little annoyance monster, and how it's like, <laughs> like so, so many things annoy you. <laughs> Which again, <laughs> I think you know, people interact with your work, and maybe you know, they don't really yeah. sometimes. They're like, oh, you do kind of struggle with that kind of like. Yeah. You want I things. Did. There's a certain way that things should be done. Yeah. You know, I see that kind of connecting to what you're saying about your class, and is maybe letting some of that stuff go and creating a space where it can be more
2: open. Yeah. And even like to a, like, like a more, I don't know, maybe like on a connected level, like I'm thinking of a lot of the ways of teaching that I've learned and I've sort of inherited and I'm kind of working through also are, you know, they are coercive. They're also like, they're kind of violent, you know, like I had to learn, what humiliation! What hmm. you know? As a teacher, I had to learn that, like, I have a, I have a little bit of a, a part of me, who, who still sort of knows that as a pedagogical strategy,
0: mm-hmm. to
2: shame someone into something. And it's easier to see it as a
0: coach like a, well, like a coaching strategy at times.
2: Like a, coach, like a coaching strategy, you know, like a terrible coaching strategy. <laughs> like I remember. <laughs> 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 I remember I remember um, being at some point I don't know if I was about 30 mm. but I had heard someone be like you know irony with kids be careful of that mm. and then I remember being with my buddy my, uh, my buddy of mine coach um and he was saying to a kid who had done something not great. He was like, great job. Great job. Mm. And the kid, you can see the kid's wheels turning. And he was like, I think I just fucked up, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I remember being like, look, irony doesn't always work with, you know, a kid, mm. um, but I could identify it because it was a totally familiar, it's a, it is a totally familiar strategy. Uh, like a little bit of humiliation, a little bit of shame. Um, you know, it's it's deep, and and it's deep from I think from my teaching life. You know, as a, a as a student and stuff, having come up. Like I think just that's how teachers teach often. Right. You know, like public humiliation. Like oh, and so and so, look what they did. You know, like or. Um, yeah, just all that that just that horrible shit,
0: you know, that right. that is so familiar to me. Well, I mean I think it's I think it's it's even it can be even rougher when you're you know, when you have skill with language to kind of make a small cut. You know, like and, and it's not a I think that's something I struggle with myself is like I can just make a little right. Yes. Yeah. And and the people who are paying attention will see it, especially and the person who gets it. We'll see it, yeah. but it's still a cut. And it's like, it's harmful.
2: Yeah, it's harmful. It's harmful. You know, some of the ways that we play, mm-hmm. which I feel like is like fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, you know, two consenting adults who kind of talk shit in a certain kind of way and love each other. It's one thing, but like an adult and a child or, or like this different kind of power relation or something. Mm-hmm. It's just like a coach and a kid. It's just like, it, it's really, it's it's not good. And it's, but it's easy to do. It's, mm-hmm. it's a familiar strategy. And it's not a, it's not different. You know, to me, it's like very much like in the same ballpark of just the grade itself. Mm-hmm. The evaluation itself. It's just another mode of evaluation, yeah. I think. Um, but I was like, I was... You know working on this basketball book and i was this kid who i'm writing with he he was remembering this he was writing about you know the thing of like when someone makes a mistake say they come to practice late someone comes to practice late and they're 15 minutes late and then you make the rest of the team line up and do 15 suicides in 15 minutes but that person has to stand there and watch Mm -hmm. maybe be at the baseline and they can't jump in, they can't join, they can't, they just gotta walk. It's like a, it's a sadistic, it's a sick thing to do to anyone, to anyone. That lesson, that's like gathering. Oh, we're gathering. That's really bad gathering. <laughs> there we go. But And I was like, I did that. I did that was a coach, I remember that. And it made perfect sense to me like uh, we'll, we'll shame them from shame shame them out of that behavior mm-hmm. so that then they'll learn you know they might not do that behavior again but then they're going to learn shame and they're also going to learn like shaming others as a strategy right for, for, for gathering Ah. <laughs> oh. Anyway, that's all to say. It feels like part of my practice as a teacher is to sort of like continually be recognizing those things that that do actually like live in me, you know, Um, and just sort of like put a little light on them. And if I see it, be like, you know, (laughs) come back, come back.
0: (laughs) Like, You know, be better. Well, I, I guess in that way, you have to like err on the side of like, whatever that side is. You know, like, and just get that side wrong. Like, oh, I just, I just let everybody go 20 minutes early. I probably shouldn't do that. Totally,
2: totally. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, all right, all right, okay. I guess we could stay the whole time, but, but I didn't humiliate anyone. Didn't you? Yeah, except myself, you know. <laughs> right. You yeah, I mean, that's the thing, actually, like, it's not, not except myself. It's like, you didn't humiliate anyone, you know, like, when those things start to break apart, it's like, no longer is anyone getting over on you. No longer is anyone like, it's just like, no, that's not what we're doing. Like the space of that, of like you, you're not being cheated because that's not even in the frame of reference for this, for this kind of gathering. We're right. not doing that. We're actually just trying to get together and take care of each other and figure out what that means for each other. Do no harm. Yeah, do no
0: harm. So what does all this look like in Ross's classes? If you're looking for the standard setup, you're probably going to be frustrated. And Ross is cool with that because he says frustration is good practice to gathering with a space for imagination.
2: You know, like, I don't know we say, like metaphor or like the imagination. I want us to sort of be in the process of studying, making things that we could not imagine ourselves making. So sometimes that's gonna be like, today I'm gonna send you a clip of a Kurosawa movie that I love, and it's gonna be a four second clip and you have to translate it into a you know, six minute dance. and maybe like a dance in your chair. Or, um, or we're gonna make a movie from the perspective, this, is, this was last week, uh, two weeks ago, you gotta make a movie from the perspective where the, where the sycamore tree in the cemetery here is the protagonist. There has to be choreography. There has to be found text. There has to be blah blah blah. You know, basically, like it's a it's a quote unquote poetry workshop. But I don't. I'm just not interested in teaching like a standard kind of workshop situation. Which means basically that you bring in the work, and you know this, but for people who don't, you bring in the work, and then they people basically tell you what you think they think you should do it, which is so deeply boring to me. Pedagogically uninteresting. I'm really interested in people like trying to do stuff. They just have no idea how to do <laughs> <You know? laughs> And so always the exercises always are, I mean, I don't know how to say always, but a lot of the time it's going to be something that probably we have never done before. I have a sense that that's just valuable practice for artists, you know? Mm-hmm. Today, I was thinking this phrase was going through my head About making, you know, writing, but making art, and it's like obedience is really bad for art. In a way, like making conditions where their ability to be obedient to what they know is going to be kind of over overridden. You know, like they're really good at like similes. Well, I don't know how you're going to do that in a movie. Good luck. Like, make it happen. You know, (laughs) make it happen. Collaboration and imagination. That's sort of what i'm trying to do i never grade i never even talk about grades like scarcely turn things in you know we mainly bring stuff make stuff bring stuff share stuff or make beautiful shit together Mm -hmm. that's like the objective
0: and that idea of classroom is a place where we practice gathering yeah like that seems like that is a that lesson is being taught either way Whether you're actually doing it or not. (laughs)
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I guess it's it's, it's where we practice how to gather, how we want to gather.
0: So gathering is going to happen no matter what. And it's going to teach some lessons, whether we're conscious of it or not. But the question is, how do we gather in a way that does not precipitate terrible shit? gather in a way that carves a path for liberation. I reached out to Nandi Comer because she's an awesome teacher and poet in her own right, and she worked with Ross at Indiana University. She's the author of American Family, A Syndrome, Tapping Out, which was awarded the 2020 Society of Midland Authors Award and the 2020 Julie Suk Award. She's a Kave Kahnem Fellow, a Lu Fellow, and a 2019 Kresge Arts and Detroit Fellow. And she had a little bit to share about what she learned in Ross's class.
1: I think that Ross, he loves to upturn expectations of what a space can be. And it's like always rooted in joy and always rooted in like, how can you make things a little strange and not uncomfortable, strange. So I think some people are interested in upturning expectations to get people outside of their comfort zone but in a certain, I think, like, that's not what Ross necessarily his aim is. It's really, like, out of joy and fun and play that, that that's not only just a form of love, but it's also a form of, like, resistance in terms of giving you space to be more expansive by breaking down that rigor and allowing you to kind of explore and... um And laugh I I know that it's like he's one of the few people that I'm always laughing with Mm -hmm. and so um it was like coming into a room with a friend who was like hey look who look what I have been learning can I share this with you and it wasn't this I think I think oftentimes especially at the university level there's always this desire to hold someone in a place of student teacher and that's not it's very much let's we're friends here let's um let's try to both learn in this space anyone who gets a chance to sit in a room with ross is really fortunate it's a really fortunate time Mm -hmm. like you're really lucky if you get to sit and watch him. There's this one thing I do want to say. Mm -hmm. It's really important that I think about that I I think one of my favorite moments of teaching is Ross and laughter because he will bring in things that aren't just poetry. So one of my favorite class experiences was when he brought in Richard Pryor to teach a class. And I just found that so, like, funny, but, like, funny in, like, the way that's not just about laughter, but funny in, in, like, that strangeness and funny in that unexpected way because I think he also didn't know what was going to happen with what he was bringing into the room. And I thought that was kind of, I thought, wow, you know what? We were both, I feel like I'm laughing to myself. He's laughing to himself. We're laughing at the whole thing. And also just like enjoying the whole experiment of what this lesson plan will do. And I think that's like something that's really hard to pull off one. He's really good at it. And I think it's because he trusts that he just trusts the process. And I think that's that's something that I, I don't think I, I, I have. But I do think that it's a very fortunate thing to be able to witness and experience when you're in a room with them.
0: If you don't have Beholding, Ross's latest book of poetry, which won the Penn Jean Stein Book Award, you got a cop. I don't often recommend a book with a 96 page poem, but this thing is a love poem to Dr. J, basketball, black people, Flying in the imagination. And it is a beauty. I asked Ross to share some and talk about how it relates to his class. So yeah, so if you can just read the whole poem, go ahead. <laughs> 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 Buckle in. Here we go. Start <laughs> on page one, go on the page. Uh, like page ninety four. <laughs> well, I was um I was trying to figure out how to like do this, but um I was interested in this idea of a practice, you know, like it was like a like one of those like little nuggets of diamond that you 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 just kinda of going through the whole book and then you get to this piece where it's like practice, you know, this yeah. is practice, whatever.
2: You know, the poem is sort of a, a meditation on on looking, on witness, it's on flight, um, black flight. Um, but to deal with the poem, you know, many other things, but to deal with the poem, in a certain kind of way, it's about photography and about sort of the spectacle. Um, but the poem is about, or one of the frames of the poem or something, the devices of the poem is that I am looking at this move from the 1980 NBA Finals, Dr. J um, playing against the Lakers, which they lost, but that was like the Lakers with early magic, but like Kareem and um, Jamal Wilkes and then, but so I just, through the course of the book, I'm just sort of studying this one, you know, two and a half second move or so. Um, but, and then having all these digressions, thinking about all of these other things um but i'm looking very closely at that at that image of dr j flying in this impossibly beautiful way that could not happen before he did it but so toward the end of the book there's this moment where i'm sort of um thinking about being with my father and mother and brother down at the jersey shore and X, Y, and Z. And this is sort of swimming with him, going swimming with him. Um, Around his neck, we'd wrap our arms, my brother and me, and become in the surf rising to meet us like scrawny brown wings on our dad's back, gusting in the tumult he would drag through until the hands of the water held us up. And he said... Big breath, and clinging to his slick, manatee shoulders, we plunged airborne, the invisible chrysalis cloaking our little bodies, bursting as he reached through the water, pulling us with him, reaching toward him to keep from sailing off. How many million eyes in the wake flashing their light at us, clinging to one another, lit by their looking, How my face to my dad's shoulder, my shoulder to my brother's face, was a kind of breathing and soaring. As a child, I could breathe underwater, my father pulling us through the thick air, pulling us through the pulling us by reaching his arms as far forward as he could and dragging them back toward us to keep us from falling, to keep from falling. Like that he'd be holding us. And in this way, flew some from the overboard. And likewise showed us how to fly some from the overboard by reaching toward what you love, which is not a citizenship we talking about, but a practice despite the whole, a practice that spites the whole, spites the overboard. We in here talking about the reaching that makes a falling flight. Do you see what I'm saying? We're in here talking about holding each other, which is a practice. We're talking about holding our breath. How long have we been? And how can I be holding yours and you be holding mine? This is my question, I think. How might I be holding your breathing and you be holding mine? A practice we're talking about. The reaching that makes a falling flight. We in here talking about the practice. We're talking about the reaching that makes a falling flight. We in here talking about the practice of the beholden, a practice of being beholden talking about how might I hold my beholden out to you and you hold yours out to me. How do we be holding each other? How do we be beholden to each other? Which is really to say, how do we be? A practice we're talking about. A practice might be that we in here talking about joy. We in here talking about joy. Which might be to say, depending on how you look at it, We in here talking about destroying the world, when the world found in gratitude like this in the beholder. Okay, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah. So,
1: how
0: how does that connect to this practice? How does this connect to your teaching?
2: I mean, that's the thing. Like, I'm sort of like, how do we make a space or know co-create a space, co-create a space such that um, we understand fundamentally that we are not discrete, that we are not individuals, and that we are in fact beholden to each other in the classroom in a in a way that is not like sort of like what what we're talking about. It's not like a like a way that wants to determine you but in a way that just sort of understands that we are mutually constitutive. Like you, do, I do not exist without you and you do not exist without me. And and that radiates into the world. Like, you know, like the sooner it feels like we divest ourselves of the mythology that we are individual and reinvest ourselves, economic words, I shouldn't say it. And, you know, we like sort of uh, seed ourselves with the fact that we are we are made of each other, you know. Seems like the this, there's some possibility in that, you know. There's some possibility in that. And it feels like a classroom is a place to study and practice that, to. which means things like a classroom as a space like in a, you know, like basic way, like a classroom as a, as a space of sharing, you know. A classroom is a space where rather than maybe the sort of the standard belief which is like actually sort of replicating, you know, maybe capitalistic desires for like accumulation and hoarding and achievement, that a classroom is actually a place of like sharing, practicing sharing, practicing understanding, practicing giving, you know? Um, Practicing being part of something, you know? Um, Practicing dominating nothing. But in practicing caring, yeah, practicing caring. I think that's, and I, I think it's that thing of like, it's a practice. We talk about a practice, like, because I think when we're talking about, you know, we are people and we have learned all of these modes of like dealing with the world. A lot of those modes of dealing with the world are just not the most useful modes of dealing with the world. Um, modes of living, we're in them, and so part of the practice, I think, partly is like even this conversation of being like, oh yeah, like, talking about what what we bring that we would rather like give away. You know, um, there's this beautiful Thomas Lux poem called a uh, triptych, middle panel burning. and at the end of the poem it's just this like sort of rant and at the end of the poem he's like i want to give it back 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 like all of this stuff so much of this stuff of our lives that is actually destroying our lives mm-hmm. i want to give it back and what's left after is just what we can share you know and maybe like call it love
0: Confession time, when I started thinking about this podcast about a year ago, I was thinking maybe do three episodes, drop the mic, but that became four, then five, then six, and it took a little longer than I thought it would, actually a lot longer, but I'm so proud to be able to give props to the people who have given me so much shine, and it's something special to hear people sharing the good news about the legacy of black teaching which continues and continues and continues. This might be my last episode for a while, but I appreciate all your support. Thank you to Ross Gay for being a good dude and being so generous with his time and wisdom. Thank you to my genius warrior wife and producer, Candice Shakur, who is always ready to ride. Thank you to the Shakur kids, Sonny, Benjamin, and Lucy. Thank you to my mom, Diane Graydon, and dad, Gilgamesh C. Jeter, who remain my first and best teachers. Thank you to Christopher Fontana, who encouraged me to take this whole crazy thing on. Thank you to my guests, Crystal Wilkinson, Alex Pate, Bill Jeter, Mr. Miller, Mr. Alan Miller. And thanks to you, listener for listening to Black Teacher Matters. Bye.